Welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Mary Caldor from the Centre for the Study of Global Governance and this is an event which is organised by the new journal, Global Policy, which is coming out in the spring and everybody must read. But it's also, and I meant to take a copy of the book so I'm going to get it, to launch a new book that is um, edited by Adam Roberts and Timothy Garton-Ash on civil resistance and power politics. And there are copies of the book outside if you want them and if you want Adam to sign them. Um, and it was an exciting conference they organized in Oxford which, in which I participated. They had lots of very interesting people. So I, I probably don't need to introduce Adam Roberts. He's very famous. He was a professor here. He's now a professor at Oxford. I first heard his name when he himself was engaged in civic resistance, going to join the Czechs in Prague in 1968. You may tell us something about that. He, um, he's also uh, a great climber. And the reason I mention it is because he happened to tell me that he is the only member of LSE staff or students who has climbed the old building. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't say any more. I'll let him. But anyway, we're very happy that he's come to introduce this book. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, yes, it proves what a dinosaur I am in the business, which is the subject of the lecture, that I was uh, pursuing doggedly the same interest um, over 40 years ago. Um, and although I've uh, not stuck with this one interest alone I'm not a, a one solutioner when it comes to problems of international relations um, it has been an enduring theme in the, in the work I've done and it did begin at LSE um, the first thing I did when I was a graduate student here, heaven knows why I was allowed to do it was to uh, run a seminar on uh, violent and non-violent forms of resistance in the international relations department here um, for which I just looked up the records the other day I was astounded to find I'd actually been paid some money to run this uh, seminar which bore no relation to any known syllabus um, but uh, nonetheless attracted some uh, interest um, and again just to illustrate what a dinosaur I am in this field perhaps I could tell you that um, when I was pursuing a practice which I would not recommend to any of you, namely write first and then do your research afterwards, um, and I found myself back in Prague in April of 69, um, I went to a restaurant the first evening with some Czech friends, and there I saw a rather suspicious looking man in a leather coat with a copy of the book I'd written about Czechoslovakia in 1968 conspicuously sticking out of the pocket and I thought oh dear the secret police really do want me to know they're watching me and um, not enjoying that situation I decided to confront him and I said what are you doing with that book sticking out of your pocket 
And he said, oh, I'm just a graduate student from LSE. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a perfectly innocent uh, explanation and slightly deflating for me. Um, If 25 years ago, whether in these halls or anywhere else, you had said that within a few years, communist rule would end in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union would cease to exist as a state, that all this would happen with very little violence, I think you would probably have been sent to the funny farm. Um, Yet a huge empire did cease to exist. The nuclear armed superpower at its center fell apart and the Cold War came to a definitive end. And the question I want to pursue in these initial remarks, and then we can pursue further in discussion, um, is why, what exactly are the factors that caused this end, and what was the role of civil resistance in, among these many other uh, factors. And since we have been through a period of massive commemoration of the fall of the wall. I myself was in um, Berlin last weekend and took part in the uh, celebration and it was indeed a very remarkable time to be there. But uh, I must make clear without wanting to spoil that particular party that the events in East Germany, although much the most telegenic part of the end of the Cold War, uh, were not the first and maybe not the most important part of the end of the Cold War. What had happened in Poland before, which was distinctly untelegenic, had led already in late August and early September uh, to the formation of a non-communist government. The first time in the communist world that a non-communist government or a government led by a non-communist had been formed. That was the astonishing breakthrough of 1989 of which East Germans were very conscious. And I have to say that I thought the Germans handled that issue very well uh, last weekend when uh, the wall of dominoes was knocked down uh, by inviting Lech Wałęsa to be the person to push the first domino. That showed a recognition that this was not a purely German event and had causes outside. Poor old Wałęsa nearly fell over in pushing the domino, but uh, the symbolism was nonetheless good. Overall, the pace of events, and it scarcely needs me to tell you this, by the way, if you can't hear, Please raise a hand or something because I can easily speak closer to the mic if it's necessary. So don't hesitate to. Uh, the, the pace of events was just extraordinary. There's someone raising a hand over there. Ah. You're having trouble hearing? Yeah. I'll get it a bit closer. Uh, in, on 10 September, Hungary opened its frontier to Austria another underestimated act of enormous significance in ending the Cold War. Because by opening the Hungarian frontier to Austria 
and at the same time <coughs> renouncing a secret treaty that they had with East Germany that, uh, by which each country had agreed not to allow the citizens of the other to escape to the West um, by, by ignoring that former secret treaty Hungary made the wall irrelevant uh, and that was a little noted act um, uh, the opening of the frontier to Austria and yet of enormous consequence even less noted had been the tearing up of the treaty which occurred a bit before and which leaves you with a conundrum I don't know if there are any lawyers here but here's a nice conundrum for you the treaty was a secret treaty as I mentioned during the course of the 1970s some wit in the Hungarian foreign ministry had a brilliant idea and sent this secret treaty to the United Nations to be published in the United Nations treaty series which is the guarantee of the integrity the, the legal validity of a treaty that's where you publish treaties but when the act of publication is itself a flagrant violation of one of the terms of the treaty which says this treaty shall not be published one is left wondering what the status of the treaty is and if any of you can enlighten me on that point I'll be very grateful uh, it seems to be a matter of deep uh, mystery but evidence already of the element of rot in the communist world including in Hungary uh, of ideological uh, rot that is an important part of the explanation of the end of the Cold War then as you know on the 9th of November the Berlin Wall was opened up on 24th of November the leadership of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia resigned following demonstrations and a general strike brilliantly orchestrated by that wonderful impresario Václav Havel uh, on the 3rd of October 1990 Germany was reunified 1st of April 91 the Warsaw Treaty ended 17th September 91 the three Baltic states have their sovereignty formally recognized and at the end of 91 the Soviet Union ceases to exist an astonishing array of activity in a period of barely over uh, two years and then of course in 1992 uh, nine former republics of the Soviet Union are also internationally recognized all these events provoke the question what factors caused this conclusion of the long drawn out and fateful rivalry of the Cold War some beguilingly simple answers have been offered always linked to very simple policy prescriptions this tendency is by no means unique to the United States but has been particularly prevalent there some have seen the wave of democratization around the world of which the end of the Soviet Empire was a very important part as leading towards a more secure future thanks to the beneficent operations of the democratic peace some have seen the end of the Cold War as a triumph of American values and might some having previously seen the Cold War as the only problem of international relations believe that its ending might mean that a future world order would be wholly benevolent or even fantastically uh, that there would be an end of history which has always seemed to me to be roughly 
the equivalent of um, uh, the weather forecaster coming on after the television news and saying there's not going to be any weather tomorrow. Um, I want to explore the Cold War's end in four parts. Uh, very briefly, when did it end? Secondly, how certain acute observers foresaw certain fundamental change in the Soviet sphere. Then briefly look at six possible explanations for the end of the Cold War. And finally, attempt some adjudication between the six explanations. Um, and what I'm giving you, since I see Arnie Westard in the audience, is uh, not only drawn from the book, uh, Civil Resistance and Power Politics, that Mary was kind enough to mention, but uh, also from a chapter on the end of the Cold War that I've contributed um, to the Cambridge History of the Cold War, which Arnie Westad has co-edited and which will be appearing uh, next uh, year. And what I've tried to do is to assess some of the historical evidence that has emerged in the past 20 years uh, and see what that tells us about the causes uh, of the end of the Cold War. Briefly, a word about when the Cold War ended. When I was, began my career at LSE, um, we had many a seminar about East-West relations in which we talked of the Cold War already then, and this would be in the late 60s, early 70s. We talked of the Cold War as something in the past because to us the Cold War was the height of tension between East and West in roughly, very roughly, the years 1948 to 1953, 4 or 5. Uh, that was the, the acme of the Cold War. And we often use different terms to describe the situation we were then in. But now, I think for wholly legitimate reasons, I don't quarrel with it, we do use the term Cold War to extend over a longer period to virtually the whole time till 1989 uh, to 91. And uh, one has to bear in mind, in using the term in this broad way, that there were enormous variations in the degree of understanding or lack of understanding, the degree of stability or lack of stability between East and West in this period. And in particular, certain aspects of the Cold War uh, certainly were disappearing in the mid to late 80s, when it, uh, with the changes under Gorbachev, with the agreements on arms control and other matters, uh, with the ending of regional conflicts, it was ceasing to be meaningful to use the term Cold War. So bear in mind that we're talking about a slow process going on over decades at the end of the Cold War. But two factors explain why it's legitimate to use the term to cover the whole period. One is that throughout, at least until the very last few years, there was a situation which is unique in world history and weird and paradoxical that there were two superpowers that largely dominated world politics, each of which claimed to be anti-colonialist, and each of which at the same time claimed to know what was best for the whole of mankind. And it's quite a juggling act in both cases to claim to be anti-colonialist and to know best what's good for everybody else, and it led to many comedies and not a few tragedies. Uh, and of course we're not wholly free 
of that uh, muddle in the contemporary world where we in the modern era claim to be anti-colonialist but also in many crises claim to know what's good uh, for the rest uh, of the world and also of course the second factor um, was uh, the crucial factor of nuclear deterrence the nuclear confrontation between east and west which was a dominant factor in the lives of people of my generation uh, and which at times threatened to degenerate into an actual uh, nuclear conflict and that nuclear confrontation did last right through from the uh, mid 50s to the to the 80s now who foresaw change it's an interesting question to ask and I'll have to answer it briefly and uh, just with illustrations but it's an important point to convey that there were those who foresaw change and that this we're not just talking about a process that suddenly erupted in 1989 and the first person I think it's fair to say who foresaw change was George Kennan in his famous article by uh, signed X he must be the uh, least anonymous uh, user of a pseudonym in the history of writing about international relations um, and in this famous article in Foreign Affairs he did say that ultimately the Soviet Union would fall apart because of problems inherent in the whole Soviet project he says it is possible that the questions involved may unleash to use some of Lenin's words one of those incredibly swift transitions from delicate deceit to wild violence which characterize Russian history and may shake Soviet power to its foundations now it didn't happen quite like that and actually I should point out that he was misquoting Lenin who didn't actually say anything quite uh, along the lines of, of uh, how Kennan was quoting him but nonetheless the idea of the incredibly swift transition and Lenin had used that phrase um, was not wholly wrong in LSE I well remember my friend and colleague and co-author Philip Windsor alas no longer with us who always took the view that the key to achieving change in Eastern Europe was first of all to recognize it uh, that it would be a necessary precondition uh, he wrote to an eventual Soviet withdrawal from Eastern Europe to make an initial acknowledgement of the division of Germany and he even had said and this is way back in the early 1960s he'd even said that such a policy could invite revolution he wasn't wrong uh, and uh, just to mention two other well-known cases of those who'd foreseen some element of change uh, my colleague at Oxford Archie Brown famously when asked to attend a, a seminar at Chequers by Mrs Thatcher then Prime Minister uh, said that it was entirely possible that there would be a process of fundamental change in the Soviet Union itself and that the kind of inner party change that had occurred in Czechoslovakia in 1968 
which he, like I, had followed closely. That uh, could also happen in the uh, uh, Soviet Union. And interestingly, Mrs. Thatcher underlined the words in his memorandum that stressed uh, these points. And um, another striking case uh, was that of um, my Polish colleague at Oxford, Zbyszek Pelczynski, who as a boy had taken part in the Warsaw Uprising uh, and who uh, decided in the early 80s, though he was a political philosopher, the world didn't really need another book about Hegel and uh, he would instead go to Poland and set up scholarship schemes and the like to bring Eastern Europeans to Oxford and uh, other UK universities. He gave a lecture in 1982 with the astonishing title The Polish Road from Communism. It's a lecture that's, that was published at the time and it describes in great detail how solidarity only formed a year or two before was, had built up a constituency that it would not lose whatever happened and that the communist regime would be forced into a three-way negotiation with solidarity and the Catholic Church. He thought that there might remain a veneer of communism in Poland while actually it would become a non-communist state uh, but the veneer in his uh, description of it was one micron thick. Uh, and what was the research methodology of those such as Archie Brown and Zbyszek Pelczynski uh, and others who um, did have a glimmering, not of the whole story, nobody could have had that, but have a glimmering of how the process would end and had a sense, uh, particularly in the case of Zbyszek Pelczynski, of how internal civil resistance would play a part in that story. Their research methodology was a very simple one. Going to countries, talking with people, and talking with people on all sides, and getting a sense, which was particularly vivid in Pelczynski's case, of the extent to which they do or do not subscribe to the official ideology. And there are others. I could mention uh, Ronald Reagan, who foresaw in different ways the end of the uh, communist world, but uh, in his case one has to say that while he did make his famous injunctions to let freedom in, to tear down this wall and all of that his administration had only the vaguest idea of how this might be achieved and um, indeed it was his own ambassador to the United Nations Gene Kirkpatrick who said it was quite impossible for a totalitarian regime to change unless there was a national liberation movement supported by the United States waging guerrilla warfare against it when she thought that then sometimes they might be able to achieve something. But otherwise, the Leninist state was a perfect creation. Uh, a classic example of somebody writing from afar who didn't have the feel for how things were changing in Eastern Europe and the Soviet uh, Soviet. Uh, union. It's often been said that very few international relations scholars foresaw the end coming and John Gaddis wrote a celebrated article in International Security about that. I just draw your attention to the fact that every single person he accused of failing to foresee the end of the Cold War was an American scholar and it's in America, in America 
but big claims have always been made that international relations is about forecasting. I don't think international relations is about forecasting. Uh, it's a sensitive issue at the moment with uh, the government trying to press us to show the impact of everything we write. Uh, but uh, it, it is very striking that the people who did the best job of forecasting the end of the Cold War were those who made fewest claims to forecasting and have certainly made fewest claims to being scientific. Uh, it's because of that essential factor of talking to people, getting impressions uh, of how they think uh, that they were able to reach the conclusions they did and historians often did um, at least as good a job and sometimes better than political scientists. Now, six explanations of how the Cold War ended. The first, to which I think great weight has to be attached, is that the Soviet leadership reached a rational decision to liquidate a system that did not work. And there's a great deal of evidence uh, in support of this. And uh, there's evidence that the Soviet leadership, for example, was influenced by the comparison with Western Europe, which was plainly doing better in many respects than the than the than Eastern Europe. And they were also influenced uh, by the experience of Czechoslovakia, where the Soviet Union had won an apparent victory in that it restored the centralized Leninist communist system, but at a huge price in that it was self-evident that socialism could only be maintained uh, by tanks. Um, and it's interesting that there is a direct connection between Gorbachev and the Czech events of 68 in the shape of Zdeněk Mlinash, a leading communist official, active in 68, uh, who had a long correspondence over many years with Gorbachev, with whom he had been a fellow student at Moscow University years before. There's that input uh, uh, there. And uh, the symbol of all that was wrong in the Soviet Union's encounter with the world was the war in Afghanistan, uh, which was deeply demoralizing within the Soviet Union. I well remember during the war visiting the Soviet Union, visiting graveyards, and uh, indeed meeting parents of people who had died and they just had difficulty justifying this uh, costly war in an ungrateful uh, land where there was no hope of achieving anything very much. Um, the evidence is overwhelming, it seems to me, that while Gorbachev did not have a convincing idea of the end state of his rev revolution, he did not simply react to events, but sought to move them forward. And so the first explanation for the cold, end of the Cold War has to give great weight uh, to the uh, Gorbachev factor. But that doesn't explain the manner in which the Cold War ended. The second level of explanation, that the US leadership turned the tide of the Cold War against Moscow. This claim has been widely made, and it's one of the worrying features about democracies that political leaders like to flatter their publics by uh, uh, giving them easy and simple explanations of complex events and uh, making them seem like the heroes. 
There's a classic example of this in President George Bush, the elders' statement to Congress in 1992, when he said, by the grace of God, America won the Cold War. And he said, a world once divided into two armed camps now recognizes one sole and preeminent power, the USA. And this they regard with no dread for the world trusts us with power and he went on in this vein words I suggest that it would be impossible to utter now uh, in a more sober and perhaps more cynical age but which are evidence of that triumphalist element that uh, was one aspect of the ending of the uh, Cold War what I think is true and what does deserve credit in the US performance leading up to the end of the Cold War is the element of emphasis on reassurance of the Soviet Union uh, of the willingness of President Reagan from the early 80s onwards even from before Gorby came in to combine his uh, threatening noises mm. with actually in practical terms uh, a reassuring hand uh, and uh, a willingness to reach agreements on a wide variety of issues so much so that Reagan infuriated the more ideological minded of his um, uh, advisers I think the people best placed to judge the role of the United States in the events around the end of the Cold War are some of the senior experienced and qualified diplomats uh, who uh, were playing key roles in these events especially Jack Matlock who was ambassador to the Soviet Union at a critical period uh, in the 1980s and who has written two books about the end of the Cold War um, and he has concluded his careful consideration of the US role in these events by saying that while the Reagan administration articulated a strategy for ending the Cold War it did not have a plan to end communist rule in the Soviet Union if we are to credit any one individual with the collapse of communist rule it had to be Mikhail Gorbachev a third level of explanation is that a stable international framework enabled it, made it possible for risks to be taken by Soviet and other communist leaders and the changes of 1989 to 91 did certainly take place against a background of relatively stable uh, relations and a high degree of international uh, cooperation and the United Nations had a significant role in the easing of the transformation of the Soviet approach to international politics and security policy West Germany's Ostpolitik contributed to this process as well the treaties with the Eastern European states and the Soviet Union all removed a source of tension that might have enabled the regimes to mobilize nationalist feeling within their countries against the West and uh, over a period of two decades 
the pursuit by the Western powers of a stable international framework, including through the UN and European detente, played a modest part in helping to weaken the control exercised by communist regimes. And this leads directly into the fourth level of explanation, which is the Helsinki process. The process that led to the conclusion of the final act of Helsinki in 1975 and then followed up from it in a series of east-west dialogues on human rights and other issues. That process enshrined certain clear principles as values which some could see as undermining communist values, including the value of human rights uh, and including an explicit recognition of the right of states to belong to alliances or not to belong them belong to them as they uh, see fit and this had multiple effects in the communist world the uh, opposition movement in Czechoslovakia Charter 77 was formed on the very day when Czechoslovakia became a party to the International Human Rights Covenants and they always cited the Helsinki Final Act as one of the legitimising uh, treaties that uh, formed a basis for the position and I uh, should just say that we have the evidence of Anatoly Dobrynin uh, that permanent fixture of the Cold War as Soviet ambassador in Washington that when the Politburo first read the terms of the Helsinki Final Act they were horrified they realised that Brezhnev as it were had signed up to something that could be explosive and indeed arguably turned out uh, to be so. It, the Helsinki process contributed to the end of the Cold War in three ways. It reinforced the idea that a stable international framework could be achieved through restraint and cooperation. It committed the leaders of the countries concerned to the legitimacy of a human rights dialogue. And thirdly, Within communist states, it encouraged the formation of independent political movements. The fifth explanation is one that was widely seen as important by writers during the Cold War, the explanation of nationalism. Many writers, especially in France, uh, Hélène Carrère-Doncos, for example, wrote uh, that the nationality problem was essentially insoluble in Soviet terms and there would have to be, uh, there would inevitably be uh, dramatic changes uh, due to the persistence of that problem. And it is true that nationality issues proved to be very important in different ways in the story of the breakup of the Soviet Union and the East European revolutions. Uh, and they were an issue that Gorbachev didn't fully understand and certainly didn't control. Uh, they were one of the factors that led the revolution of uh, 89 to 91 to assume different forms from what anybody had planned. But it's hard to say that nationalism was the cause of the end of the Cold War, certainly even harder to say it was the cause uh, of the breakup of the Soviet Union because clearly preceding that had been the recognition on a much broader level and a bigger range of topics that the Soviet project and the Soviet approach to world politics 
uh, was in trouble. Now we come to the central issue of non-violent opposition in East Europe and the Soviet Union and how it assisted change. Up to now I've been very restrained in advertising my book. It goes far wider than 1989, both temporally and geographically. It covers everything from Gandhi to Aung San Suu Kyi. Of its 19 case studies, six refer in detail to the events of 1989 to 91. The chapters on Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, the Baltic States, China and the Soviet Union. Now the subject of the book, uh, civil resistance, that's the use of uh, non-violent forms of political action in social causes, involves not just appealing to the adversary, but involves the attempt to undermine the adversary's sources of power, both domestic and international. And it's the, a central theme of the book that this is not an opposite of power politics. And if, in explaining the course of events, one should neither look exclusively at events from below, nor exclusively at, at high politics events from above. It's the interactions that are interesting and important and which uh, our book uh, seeks to capture. It was an extraordinary and central fact of the ending of the Cold War that there were so many opposition movements in key countries which played a disciplined role and, and channeled change in particular directions. Their reliance on methods of civil resistance made it difficult for communist governments to treat them as a security threat, although they sometimes tried, and it enabled them to keep up a dialogue with their adversaries that in the end assisted peaceful transitions of power. In Eastern Europe, the movements had originated long before 1989 and had taken many different forms. In Poland, the workers' movement, which started back in 1970, 71, with events in the Baltic ports, including uh, killings of uh, many strikers in that winter of 70 to 71, um, which also involved crucially and uniquely the uh, role of the Catholic Church, which was uh, a very strong support to the spirit of opposition and sometimes a practical support. Uh, as well. In Czechoslovakia, as I mentioned, there was Charter 77. In Hungary, there was an extraordinary combination of party-led change and gradual growth of civil society institutions and a number of dignified and disciplined demonstrations, particularly remembering the events of 1956 and increasingly as time wore on, demanding the introduction of pluralism in Hungary. And these movements never succeeded in that classic goal of completely undermining the adversary sources of power in the sense of bringing about a total strike of all the soldiers on the other side. But they did succeed in reducing the power of the regimes and demonstrating that they, they did not have popular support. And most clearly in the case of East Germany, they simply made it impossible for particular policies of the regime to be continued. 
with the leaking away of thousands of refugees through Hungary and Austria, the wall had simply become irrelevant. And the very confused decision taken on the 9th of November 1989 to take down the wall and the confused transmission of that decision was a reflection of the fact that the wall uh, no longer served a useful purpose anyway. My favourite story from um, uh, 1989 is of the East German, East Berliner, who set up with his family in his trabby, drove through East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Austria, West Germany, along the Autobahn to West Berlin, to arrive, poor chap, just in time on the 9th of November to see the wall come down. <laughs> and since this is the London School of Economics, the economists among you might well say that his journey was really not necessary and was an economic mistake. But in a sense, it was absolutely essential because it was the fact that people had been able to do that that had made uh, the wall uh, and uh, uh, irrelevance. It was never certain that the USSR and other governing communist parties would eschew the use of violence just because uh, uh, it had been uh, 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 just because Gorbachev had indicated opposition to use of violence. Where there was chaos, if there was chaos or violence in an Eastern European state, there was still the fear that there would be uh, violence, and indeed that did happen in some cases. There were um, events such as in Georgia and in Lithuania where demonstrators were killed, in Lithuania as late as 1991. Um, but the peaceful struggle, the peaceful nature of the struggle undoubtedly contributed to the inhibition on violence, which was the special characteristic of the events uh, in 1989. And uh, the, thus Poland uh, and to a lesser extent Hungary became models of something that Marxist theory had said was quite impossible, namely the peaceful transition from one system to another. The second effect of civil resistance, if that was the uh, the first one, the effect on the leadership of the Communist parties and their decision-making processes. The second effect was on the peoples of the Soviet Union. The methods of peaceful struggle used to such effect in Eastern Europe in 1989 were picked up and uh, adapted in the Soviet Union itself. First, with the remarkable Baltic chain on the 23rd of August 1989 uh, in which between one and two million people joined hands and called for the peaceful restoration of our statehood and it's uh, an illustration of how degenerate things had got in the communist world that these demonstrations had the full support of the local ruling communist parties. Um, the most crucial effect of civil resistance came when in response to the essentially conservative coup d'etat in Moscow 
on 19th of August 1991, there was massive popular opposition leading to the coup's collapse on the evening of the 21st of August. That event, more than any other, opened the way for the advance of Boris Yeltsin, President of the Russian Federation, who had famously, of course, during these few days, stood on top of a tank and called for an end of the coup. And this is a very interesting event, too, because of the nature of the pressure that was wielded. It wasn't just a case of pure nonviolence against the uh, uh, army coup. It was also the case, and it was symbolized by uh, Yeltsin's presence on top of the tank, that the soldiers were confronted with an awful dilemma. But if they persisted in supporting the coup, they might face the might of the Russian Federation. Uh, and um, so it was the might of one state, the Russian Federation, against that of another, the Soviet Union, in which uh, the Russian Federation uh, won out. What do all these events tell us about civil resistance itself? Firstly, it can rarely, if ever, remove all the sources of power of a regime but it can win significant support in the adversary regime. And it contributed to the Soviet non-use of force. Secondly, it shouldn't be seen as a separate and self-contained instrument of change. Thirdly, it often leads to stalemate. Solidarity may be able to immobilize the Baltic ports. It may be able to... Uh, make a nonsense of the uh, regime's pretensions of popular support, but it can't actually deliver victory on its own. And because of this tendency to lead to stalemate, it tends to lead to round tables. Uh, hence the famous round table discussions in Poland in January 1991. Uh, and of course it was a round table that Gandhi sat around with the British in London in 1931 and again it was a round table that the two would-be presidents of Ukraine sat around with many others including the president of Poland in 2004 to negotiate an end to a crisis which civil resistance had helped to accentuate. So there's a connection there between such resistance and striking. And fourthly and some of those who took part in these events were very conscious of this. These cases of civil resistance created a new model of revolution. Uh, in Poland, Adam Michnik and others were very conscious that they did not want to repeat the mistakes of all past revolutions. The violence, the minority seizing power, the utopianism leading to cruelty, uh, all of that uh, they consciously and deliberately renounced in favor of a new and well thought out uh, model. Well, that's the end of my commercial for my book, except to say that it also has wonderful photos. Uh, and it's yours tonight, I believe, for a knockdown price of 20 quid. But I just do want to say something about the larger process of which civil resistance is a part. The historical evidence suggests a multifaceted explanation of the end of the Cold War. 
each of the six explanations that I offered has some evidence in its support and has persuasive power. Thus, the factors that led to the end of the Cold War include what might easily be seen as ideological opposites and logical incompatibles. They included force and diplomacy, pressure and detente, both acceptance of the role of the United Nations and a willingness to act outside it, both belief and disbelief in the reformability of communism, both non-violent resistance in some countries and guerrilla resistance in others, both elite action and street politics, both nuclear deterrence and the ideas of some of its critics, especially the idea of defensive conventional defence, which Gorbachev, rather to the surprise of those of us who have written about it in connection with NATO, um, Gorbachev picked up and ran with. It involved both threat and reassurance. It involved both nationalism in the disparate parts of the Soviet Empire and supranationalism in the European community. Indeed, a worrying possibility is that the Cold War wouldn't have ended but for two myths. The myth that Soviet-style communism could be reformed and the myth that Star Wars could work. The complexity and indeed complete indigestibility of this mix of factors helps to explain why they have not attracted the same attention as have the ideas of the great simplifiers. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Adam. That was a great uh, round-up, round-table of all the factors that led to the end of the Cold War. Actually, before I open the floor, I'd like to add a couple of things and see what you think. I was rather surprised that one of the explanations you didn't mention was the economic explanation. Um, I mean, it seems, seemed at the time that all of the East European countries were tremendously indebted. Soviet Union had this huge deficit. They'd run out of ideas for reform within the plan system. And in retrospect, 20 years later, it does seem clear that many of the apparatchiks wanted to exchange their political positions for economic gain. They were fed up with being poorly paid managers of enterprises and thought they could become rich capitalists. So I think that's one, is that one explanation. And my other one, which you'd expect me to make, I think, <laughs> is that I think it wasn't only civic resistance in Eastern Europe. I think the peace movement played quite a critical role in two respects. One which you mentioned was the influence, a set of ideas which Gorbachev could take up, like defensive defense or reasonable sufficiency. Um, but the other was through actually making links with groups in Eastern Europe and putting pressure on peace committees. You know, so that the last few years before 89 saw a rash of new groups that actually were formed out of the dialogue like Peace and Human Rights in East Germany, Freedom and Peace in Poland. So those are my two questions to you. Wonderful. They, they both focus on things that I was conscious of leaving out 
because of having to, to uh, keep within the allotted time. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, it's implicit in my first explanation of the end of the Cold War that, that as it were, the rational Soviet decision uh, to change from a system that wasn't working. It's implicit in that that the economic factor in that was very large. Uh, and certainly uh, there's plenty of evidence in support of that, that just within the Soviet Union, the economic system, the system was in uh, dire trouble and it's part of the explanation for the particular way things went that Gorby analysed the problem correctly to the extent of recognising that the central planning system wasn't producing the results but did he put any bananas and lemons in the shop? Not that I could see. Uh, there was very little to show and in the minds of the public, we might have loved Gorby in the West for, for all that he said but in the, in the eyes of the Soviet public he was just another communist leader making excellent speeches but that didn't seem to bear all that much relation to reality especially when it came to improving it uh, so the, I think the economic factor was, was uh, very large indeed and it's equally true in Eastern Europe and there's evidence from uh, the Soviet side uh, that the Soviet Union was particularly conscious that a number of East European countries including East Germany and Hungary were deeply in debt to the West and one of the arguments against the Soviet Union invading these countries and restoring um, uh, democratic centralism and all of that uh, was that the Soviet Union was not in a position to assume responsibility for these enormous debts. So this raises an interesting question as to whether a good technique for dealing with a, a dodgy political system of a particular type is to lend it enormous sums of money. China. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, as regards the um, uh, peace movements, uh, there were certainly some significant effects and I personally believe that the biggest of them was one that was an effect partly because it struck a chord in the East anyway that was proposals for defensive defense it was very interesting that when uh, for example Soviet writers started in the mid 80s about 86 to 7 to write again about uh, the need for um, uh, defensive principles to determine uh, all that happens uh, in, in, in military strategy and deployments uh, they did so drawing on not only western writings uh, but also earlier Soviet writings from the 1920s so where there had been some similar ideas expounded. Uh, it's also true that, that, uh, that the influence of this thinking in the West was particularly strong in some East European countries, including Hungary, and I think it's not an accident that the meeting at which Gorby subscribed 
to the doctrine of defensive defence, which provided a rationale for reducing the troop levels in Eastern Europe and reducing the degree of reliance on nuclear weapons. Uh, that, that meeting was the one in Budapest. So yes, there, there is a connection there. The one doubt I have is that I do think that there were some significant differences of emphasis between some of the uh, uh, organizers of movements in the East and the Western peace movements, or at least differences between them and some of the Western peace movements. For example, um, no sooner had Václav Havel come to power than he uh, made a speech saying how um, grateful they were to NATO for upholding the cause of freedom in the Cold War and uh, then of course Czechoslovakia replied to join NATO in due course. I recently had an interesting account, <coughs> I hope Mary will forgive me for mentioning this, from one of the leaders of the um, uh, Solidarity Movement in Poland. In fact, he was the spokesman for Solidarity. And he described a meeting with a, uh, with a spokesperson for European nuclear disarmament. It wasn't you, Mary. It was Lynn Jones. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, from Greenham Common. Apparently, yes. So, so she from Greenham Common meets Janusz uh, uh, Onoskiewicz, spokesman for Solidarity. And she, and she says, wouldn't it be wonderful if your movement in Eastern Europe and our movement in Western Europe could link hands in opposition to the Euro missiles? At which point, according to Onoskiewicz, Onoskiewicz said, could you tell me the range of the missiles that NATO currently has deployed against the Warsaw Pact, the land-based missiles? And Lynn Jones said, yes, I think they're about sort of four or five hundred mile range, something like that. And Onoskiewicz said, fine. Now, could you tell me the range of the proposed missiles? And she said, yes, there are these new crews in Pershing 2s that will have a much longer range and can uh, strike the Soviet Union. Well, if you know anything about Poland, you would know that a Pole would not be too distressed to learn about a Western military capacity that could hit the Soviet Union, but he might be very worried indeed about a Western military capacity that would only be able to hit Poland as a way of punishing the Soviet Union. So they didn't quite see eye to eye on, um, on this point. There were differences at times, uh, but nonetheless I do think that that sense, and this is the critical thing of 1989, the sense that the division of Europe was artificial, and that the two halves of Europe had to come together and that the wall should not last was a sense that was not confined to Reagan. It had many, as it were, cultural, civilizational aspects and the peace movement was very much part of that process. Great. Well, now I will open up the floor for questions. Yes. Um, I think there's a mic roving and it's great if you say who you are just because it's... Nice to know. My name is Henry Davis uh, Soas. There was one country in 1989 where there was violence in the transition, that was Romania. And I wonder to what extent you uh, would assume that there was a civil movement in Romania, or more likely, was it some sort of uh, 
indigenous coup against Ceausescu because the government that followed could certainly not be described as a, as, as a Western-style yeah. democracy. There had been some very interesting uh, and consciously nonviolent uh, opposition to particular policies of Ceausescu in Romania, um, including that led by a priest, um, Father Turkish, in Transylvania. Uh, so these ideas and, and popular movements were far from unknown um, in Romania. And in that case, it was uh, basically a defense uh, of ethnic Hungarian rights and Hungarian language rights and so on. Uh, when it came to the events of uh, late December 1989, <clears throat> Romania was indeed the exception that proved the rule in Eastern Europe in the sense that it was much the most violent uh, confrontation. And the reasons for that seem to me to boil down to the fact that, that Romania was a national communist regime which did not rely particularly on the Soviet Union for support, was not afraid to defy Gorbachev, the, the leaders were not afraid to defy Gorbachev and use force, um, and in which uh, there was less by way of prepared, uh, as it were, non-violent action in the capital than there had been in the, in the further north in Transylvania. So a combination of factors, but above all, the fact that this was a, a seedy, nasty, national socialist regime in Romania helps to explain that fact. And you are right, what happened had to some extent the element of a coup. Um, and there, there then remained a great deal of speculation about whether that coup itself had had some degree of Soviet Support and many articles were written in the Romanian press indicating that it might have, have done so and that people like Silvio Brucan uh, might have been part of that process. I'm an, I'm an agnostic on that, but I'm not in doubt that the fundamental cause of that being a much more violent process was uh, A, that it was such an egotistical and nationalistic regime which had long since... Uh, lost much connection with, uh, uh, as it were, the, the more general cause of socialism uh, would not be put <coughs> off its pursuit of power by the fact that there was evidence of the socialist project being in difficulty. Uh, that seems to me to be the, the, the basic explanation. Yeah. at the back there. Um, why do you think that the resistance from inside the church was far less efficient in countries where the Orthodox Church was uh, the church of the majority, such as Romania, in contrast with other countries where the church of the majority was the Catholic Church, such as Poland? Two reasons. One, despite the fact that there were many instances for example, in the Soviet Union, of uh, opposition of priests to this or that aspect of uh, the socialist system um, or of government policies, the tendency within the Orthodox Church um, 
has always been much more than in uh, the Catholic Church in Eastern Europe or uh, in, of course, Protestant churches, to be a state church and to be compliant towards the authorities, and even in some countries to be itself um, a spearheading symbol of nationhood, as in Serbia. So I think that uh, uh, in Eastern Europe, the Catholic Church uh, was often in Hungary and in uh, Poland uh, in confrontation with communist regimes. And there's a particular factor in Poland. Not only is Poland uh, almost uniformly Catholic, 95% of the population of Poland professed to be Catholic, um, but also the Catholic Church was led by a Pope who um, uh, was extraordinarily articulate and seldom put a foot wrong. Um, unlike, I hope I'm not offending anybody here if I say the present Pope seems to be the only person who believes in his own infallibility and frequently puts a foot wrong. But it was his actual, the actual particular skill of that particular Pope uh, in conducting his relations with all parties in Poland that was of a special importance in, in preparing the way for events in 1989. You started by saying that the height of the Cold War was actually a lot earlier than... Um, could the end of the Cold War have come earlier? And if not, why not? In other words, was it the particular combination of all these causes uh, occurring at a particular time that allowed it to come to an end, or could it have come to an end earlier? I think it was bound to be a slow process because the recognition which was the central feature of 1989 that the communist dream was not going anywhere um, and you know better than I as it were that that process of disillusion developed slowly gathered pace then sometimes there were reverses and then it went forward again and so on that is by nature it seems to me a slow process and um, likewise the recognition that the West was advancing in a way that Eastern Europe was not was something that depended upon events on several fronts and I think among the most significant because of conveying a sense that the momentum was in the West uh, developments such as the transitions in Spain and Portugal and before that in Greece uh, which showed that as it were the Western European model of democracy and the then common market European communities uh, that was a highly successful model and in the mid to late 80s there were dramatic moves afoot for enhancing European unification on a wide variety of fronts and that again gave a sense of, of dynamism 
So I'm inclined to think that much as it might have been desirable for the Cold War to have ended much earlier, uh, it's hard to see quite how it could have happened. And especially as what was necessary for the events of 1989 to fall out the way they did was a willingness of communist systems to pack their tents and go. And that required a number of different factors to be in place, not just the decline of their belief, but also a sense that the bitterness of the Cold War had gone. They would not be punished for what they had done, and the bitterness of the early Stalin period had gone. They would not be punished for what they had done, and uh, that there was, as it were, um, a through train, uh, uh, a process that would not be traumatic for them if they did abandon power. And that, that's led to the interesting accusation that one thing we have seen in the years since 1989 is the price of velvet. That's to say, the continuation in positions, if not of power, or at least not of political power, but continuation of wealth in the hands of former communists. And if you are uh, a dock worker in Gdansk, you have been at great sacrifice in the spearhead of a truly extraordinary struggle that achieved something that people would have said could not be achieved. And now you are unemployed and you see your former oppressors going to their country houses in flash cars, wearing bling, with lots of fancy girls and so on. Uh, it must be pretty bitter. And so there is a price to be paid. But I think it's the fact that that through train could happen uh, that made the revolution possible when it did happen. But uh, I would be the first to say that we are in the hands of chance in all these matters. And that um, just as nobody could have forecast the extraordinary pace of events in 89, so I wouldn't rule out that some of those might have happened earlier. All I would say is, if they had happened earlier, I think the risk would have been higher that they might have gone wrong. Okay, shall I take... There seem to be suddenly quite a lot, and we've only got 15 minutes, so maybe I will take three. I saw you with the beard, and then the lady there, and the gentleman down here, and then we'll, if we have time, we'll go for another round. Well, um, my question is twofold, and um, both um, aspects are related to China. Um, one question is, um, what do you think would have happened if the Soviet leadership had chosen to go the Chinese way in 1989 and liberalize the economy, whereas keeping the political aspect intact? Um, and how do you see the future of China in this light? Okay. Um, Mary O'Regan, may I ask, um, what do you think was the defining characteristic of John Paul II's papacy that encouraged, you know, Catholics in the um, former communist regimes to actually rebel against the rebel against the communism? Because there's an awful lot of sort of hyperbole about his role, but what actually were the defining characteristics of it? What did what actually did he do? 
Uh, Sir Adam, you mentioned the transitions to democracy in Spain, Portugal, and Greece, but I just wonder if a factor wasn't also the obvious electoral decline of the communist parties in Italy and France, if that was at all how uh, much of an effect that had. And on the economic front, um, I mean, how much intelligence was, uh, did the West have of, a, of an accurate um, uh, nature? And I'm thinking particularly of, of the theory sometimes put forward that the West was consciously trying to exhaust the Soviet Union economically by um, devising almost artificially an arms race, I mean, things like Star Wars and so on. Yeah. Um, China. Uh, what would have happened if the Soviet leadership had gone the Chinese way in 1989 to 91? Um, it's very possible that we would still have. Soviet Union in some form but essentially crippled uh, because I think it would have been even more difficult in the Soviet Union than it was in China uh, to justify such a policy uh, the reason being that the Soviet regime always did have as a key element of justification of its existence um, economic success that this was the great socialist experiment and it had failed much more comprehensively in the Soviet Union than in China and so um, if uh, force had been used it might have um, the system might have been preserved. What is striking about the um, uh, Soviet position is that they didn't see the choices that way at, at the time because Gorbachev thought, and it's one of the fascinating delusions of 89 which show how crucial delusions can be in politics. Gorbachev thought that he could let change happen in Eastern Europe without it leading to major change in the Soviet Union itself. And that's, it seems to me, one of the uh, fundamental misunderstandings of that period, although it's a misunderstanding that in my view led to a beneficent uh, result. Um, then uh, you ask about the China side of it. Um, the experience of Tiananmen was something like a near-death experience for the Chinese Communist Party and led it to uh, move even more decisively than it had already in the form of, uh, as it were, delivering the goods economically in a way that the Soviet Union had never succeeded in doing. Uh, and so it remained a communist state really only in the sense that it remained a one-party state but not uh, uh, with a party on the Leninist model but not in any other sense um, and I think even now uh, the memory of 89 in China is one of um, 
where the Communist Party feels that it was a close-run thing, leaders of the Communist Party. Uh, their great claim to rule is a claim based on national power and na nationalism. They have achieved something that would have seemed impossible before uni unity of China, no foreign invaders in China, um, and uh, a degree of economic success uh, that uh, has no previous parallel in Chinese history. That's, these are extraordinarily strong claims uh, to power and um, that I think helps to explain why communist rule has survived in China when it hasn't um, elsewhere. Um, Mary asked about <coughs> what were the defining conditions that enabled the Catholic uh, Pope, Pope John Paul uh, to achieve what he did. Um, I would say by giving Poles self-confidence and giving them a sense that they could come together in a non-communist moment uh, in an enormous gathering and feel their own solidarity and clearly John Paul recognized the strength of solidarity I believe that he actually used the term solidarity on his famous visit to Poland and um, therefore uh, broke down the divisions within the Polish population which had inhibited common action uh, and enabled solidarity to expand its base which it was already doing anyway it's one of the remarkable features of solidarity that it combined intellectuals and workers and students uh, and uh, people in the, in the end people throughout Poland I think the fact of the Pope drawing people together was, was powerful in that process I'll never forget the first time I went to Poland seeing remarkable evidence of the power of the Catholic Church even then uh, I was with some Russians going around a village in southern Poland and the Russians said to a Pole who happened to be a member of the Central Committee of the party they said to him why do you allow the Catholic Church to dominate the village so? It's obvious that this church is the centre of the village it's where everybody meets uh, there's nothing much else in the village you shouldn't allow it to have this kind of role at which point the Pole who was not stupid said well you have to understand because statistics are always the best method of arguing in a communist world he said you have to understand that 95% of the population of Poland is Catholic and the Russian wasn't stupid either and he replied but in the conference this morning you told us that 10% of the population of Poland is in the communist party and now you're telling us that 95% of the population is Catholic that means that at least 50% of the communist party and probably a great deal more Catholics, how can this be? Uh, to which the Pole mumbled something defensive about how we don't let them into senior positions. But that illustrated then, already years before solidarity, not just the, the strength of Catholic solidarity in Poland, but the Russian awareness of it and the Russian shock 
at it. Um, uh, on the question of the decline of communist parties in um, the West, uh, I think it is true that that decline was another factor that contributed to uh, the lack of enthusiasm in the Soviet Union for the Soviet project. But I think a much more important one was the, the enormous expense of keeping indigenous, well, that's the wrong word, keeping various pseudo-communist regimes afloat in various parts of the world, um, which were costing uh, millions of dollars a day just to, to keep that, that thin veneer of, of uh, socialism, be it in Angola or... Is there, Cuba is more than a veneer of socialism, but, but uh, uh, and then in uh, Ethiopia and such places. Uh, and the, 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 the wasting of enormous resources on these pet socialist countries was something that uh, uh, irritated many... Soviet citizens, and certainly Gorbachev showed absolutely zero enthusiasm for these foreign uh, adventures, and indeed it was part of his genius that he showed an ability to, to liquidate useless ventures. Was the West trying to exhaust the Soviet Union uh, by arms racing it out of existence? Uh, others may know better than I, Mary Keldor may know better than I, but uh, it's not clear to me that the, there was a, that, 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 that was a dominant central purpose of uh, U.S. defense policy or U.S. overall strategy. It was one thought which uh, in the uh, mad hothouse atmosphere of Washington, D.C., where there are a thousand think tanks, each with its own policy, to profit a, an administration which may or may not listen to it, there were inevitably uh, proposals of that kind, but uh, I'm not convinced that it was uh, formalized as uh, a clear policy or even was subliminally a clear intent of uh, major figures in the um, uh, regime. Uh, and the Soviet Union was quite capable of exhausting itself um, without the need for too much uh, provocation, not least because of the sheer rigidity of its industries. Um, factories that could produce missiles when asked to produce something else more useful by Gorby uh, simply couldn't do it, or rather they could technically do it. I went round a spacecraft factory that had been told to make useful stuff and they made a wonderful wheelbarrow um, out of uh, carbon composite, it must, a stealth wheelbarrow that must have been the most expensive wheelbarrow in the history of wheelbarrows but th there was, it was like last day of term at the poly there was no way that it could be marketed they had no idea of how to market it uh, so it seems to me that the what we often underestimate in the West and American commentators particularly is the extent to which the change in the Soviet Union had origins within the Soviet Union including generational change okay. um, now there was we have three minutes and there was one person I didn't catch up there so why don't we have one last question 
Um, you talked about the role of the uh, Helsinki Accords in empowering uh, local human rights activists in the Eastern Bloc. Um, so I was wondering, in light of that, uh, do you think Brezhnev anticipated um, that possible consequences when signing the Accords? Um, and, if, uh, or, and if so, why did he sign it? Um, or was it sort of uh, just a failure to think through the consequences that led him to accept that accord and uh, the human rights provisions of that accord? Um, one of the great advantages the West had in the Helsinki negotiations uh, and nobody's yet written a really full account of the whole process from start to finish there are interesting books on aspects of the Helsinki process but one of the advantages the West had was uh, that Brezhnev wanted the European Security Treaty more a new European security arrangement more than anybody in the West did and that always puts you in a weak negotiating position if you want something too badly why did he want it? Uh, the Soviet Union had long taken the view since the early 50s that there ought to be some superior all-European security framework that would not divide Europe and in which the Soviet Union could be part. And it was an idea that naturally appealed to the Soviet Union because in as much as it might reduce the American role in Europe or even eliminate it entirely, uh, it would uh, give the Soviet Union a greater degree of power in Europe. So it's natural that, that they supported this proposal uh, and um, even when the Soviet Union engaged in one of those fine satirical moves that I think we don't have quite enough of in international relations and made a formal application to join NATO um, it did so in the name of setting up a pan-European uh, security arrangement so Brezhnev was acting on the basis not of impulse but of a strong strand of thought in the Soviet Union and indeed a Soviet interest in establishing a pan-European security system. Now some people in the West had the wit to see that this was a ball you could pick up and run with and that uh, if a new European security uh, set of principles was going to be expounded they could put some good stuff into it I had similar experience once in the Soviet Union in 1986 I was at a conference where the organizers were desperate for a communique and we Westerners at the conference didn't mind whether there was a communique or not that meant that we had a complete veto on the terms of the communique and, and the Helsinki process was a bit like that uh, and some European negotiators including one of the Brits involved uh, Crispin Tickell were conscious that if in the Helsinki process you enunciated certain principles to do with human rights uh, to do with common measures of security like mutual uh, inspection of military maneuvers and so on you could actually get something quite positive out of the agreement that would not sell any vital western positions and especially as they got into the agreement the right to belong to alliances 
So no way was Helsinki a replacement for NATO, or for that matter, for the Warsaw Pact. Uh, so th th that's how the change took place uh, in the course of the negotiations from what the Soviet Union had aimed at to what a number of Western negotiators, including, of course, there were many on the German side who uh, very skillfully, in the same spirit as they had shown in Ostpolitik, uh, pursued this aim of a sensible treaty. And uh, the people who were not sensitive to what was going on were the Americans, especially not Henry Kissinger, who uh, thought the Europeans were selling out, and that this was Munich all over again, or something close to it. Kissinger had no enthusiasm for the whole Helsinki process, although later, in his memoirs, he did graciously recognize that the Helsinki process had in the end proved extremely positive. But it took him a long time uh, to get round uh, to that uh, position. You ask why Brezhnev didn't anticipate it, and I'm afraid it's an interesting example of what, you, what happens when you've got a highly centralized state led by somebody who is verging on Gaga, uh, that um, all the courtiers around Brezhnev knew that Brezhnev wanted this agreement and were prepared, therefore, to make the necessary concessions to get it. And as I mentioned, the Politburo wasn't consulted until it was too late uh, and was then duly shocked. And I think it's a fascinating example of uh, a case in which serious diplomacy uh, can have quite remarkable long-term knock-on effects, as Helsinki undoubtedly did, and nowhere more so than encouraging uh, movements of civic resistance uh, in not just, uh, and most obviously in Czechoslovakia, but uh, some of the Soviet movements that sprang up, Helsinki, Helsinki committees, I think they called themselves, and uh, 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 the movement in East Germany also cited uh, the Helsinki process and principles as part of the justification for what they were doing. And basically it was a part of the process of a change in ideology where the language of class confrontation gave way to a different language which encompassed language on human rights. The only other thing I'd say about it is in the funny way that events of 1989 are so absolutely riddled with paradox, it may have been a good thing that the Americans misunderstood Helsinki. Because by misunderstanding it and attacking it as treachery, it may have encouraged the Soviet Union to stay on board in the Helsinki process. <laughs> Well, thank you. That was wonderful. I must say that I was just remembering, as you were talking about Helsinki, there was a famous exchange at the end of the Helsinki Final Act between Giscard d'Estaing, who was then President of France, and Olof Palme. And Giscard d'Estaing said, now we can all agree. And Olof Palme said, no, on the contrary, we can begin to disagree. <laughs> and I think that is exactly what Helsinki mm. did, and that's exactly what you have been describing. So that was fantastic. Thank you very, very much. And, um